Hello and welcome to Tutorial Stories, LCF's In Conversation series in which we invite in someone who works in or with fashion and they have to bring an item from their work or from their wardrobe and we use that as the base of the conversation. My name is Susanna Cordner, I'm Senior Research Fellow of Archives at LCF and I'm joined today by Professor Emma Tarlow. Thank you very much for joining me, Emma. Um, so in this series, we invite in uh, a variety of figures who work in the creative industries, and we try to explore the way in which they think about fashion or personal presentation um, and the way that might reflect their professional practice or experience. So to get us started, could you please describe your practice and what you do? Yes, well, thank you. I'm an anthropologist, and so I tend to work very sort of ethnographically with material artefacts and fashion. Mm -hmm. And uh, recently I've been doing research uh, on the global trade in human hair, which really started off as very much as a contemporary uh, research project, looking at uh, the, the sort of social life of hair and the market for sort of wigs and uh, hair extensions. Mm. But in order to understand the contemporary, of course, I needed to also look into the past. And this got me sort of also intrigued in a, in a much older um, uh, market for human hair. Yeah, <laughs> which is very, very interesting and we'll be elaborating on through your um, objects that you've brought with you today. Um, so I was interested in the idea of anthropology through through objects and through fashion and dress and textiles perhaps in particular, which seems to be a running thread through your work. Um, when I'm speaking to people from different academic backgrounds mm. within this series, it's interesting to see how dress history or that experience and discussion of dress um, it's categorised, it could be history, it could be psychology, it could be art and design. Um, how do you think it fits with anthropology? Do you think that's um, a good a good fit? <laughs> well, I think it is. I think, you know, within anthropology, we very often like to sort of work quite close to the, to the ground, mm. to people and to things. So there's a whole branch of sort of material anthropology. Yeah. And more recently, a kind of interest in materials themselves. And so sort of one branch of anthropology has been sort of following... Uh, the lives and trajectories of materials and their transformations and in a sense I you know this part of my work on hair yeah <laughs> relates very much to, to that kind of thing yeah. but one of the things that was really interesting about doing the research about hair is that it took me into very different sort of domains into politics into history into religion mm. and also into fashion and I was really seeking for materials uh, and and uh, conversations that crossed those different areas. Yeah. And that's one of the fascinating things about hair, that it yeah. does cross all those domains. Yeah, meeting of minds, meeting of experience, but also meeting of worlds. That's really, really intriguing. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in that line between personal experience and kind of uh, public or cultural mm. meaning and mm. exploration. And that seemed to be a theme with your other um, works, well, some of your past publications, like... So today we'll be talking about things related, as you said, to the secret lives of hair, but uh, previously clothing matters, dress and identity in India. I really liked the kind of opening line that how we manage and express our identities and visibly Muslim fashion, politics and faith. Um, and with each of those, are you conscious of uh, individual wearers or experience or because of your particular lens of anthropology, do you find it's more about the global impact or cultural impact? Well, it's very much both. What mm -hmm. it's about is connecting the incredibly yeah. intimate and personal stories that are very much linked to individual people's lives mm -hmm. and their own positionings in the world and then connecting those to sort of global situations yeah. so that you can understand the two in relation to mm -hmm. each other. And it's really that relationship between the intimate and the sort of international global side of it that, that interests me particularly with all of those topics. You're right. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, and I was also struck by the level of fieldwork that seems to go into your practice. And I was thinking 
field work and object-based study must be quite a nice pairing mm. and we you know get there on the ground and get there through the real the real objects the real experience perhaps yeah very much so and that's very much uh, an important part of of most anthropologists work I mm. would say is to is to try to work ethnographically and not just to sort of accept the categories that we're given or are familiar with mm. but to actually work out how people use those categories and use those objects or whatever it is you're talking about uh, in their everyday, everyday lives. Yeah. <laughs> and hair, of course, which actually begins growing from someone's head is a particularly intimate fibre. So it's particularly fascinating as to how that can be sort of disconnected from people at one level, can travel around the world, but, <laughs> but then becomes reconnected to people in very personal ways at the, mm. the end of that sort of travel as well. Yeah, absolutely. That chain reaction still brings it back to the body. Um, so with that in mind, perhaps we can move on to the, ob well, I was going to say object, but we've actually <laughs> got a brilliant array in front, in front of us on the table today. Um, perhaps you could talk through um, what we've pulled together to look at today. Yes, well, I did I did try to limit yeah, myself to a single great. object. <laughs> but that single object, as with many objects, opens out onto other things. Mm -hmm. But the object itself is a hairnet uh, made from human hair. So these were nets uh, that were worn to keep a woman's hair in place. Hmm. And um, and these human hair nets sort of became popularised in about the 1890s and probably ceased to exist more or less, at least in Europe and America, uh, around about the 1940s, um, but were particularly popular around about the 1920s. Hmm. And... Um, it's not that hair nets had not been worn before. There's a long history of, of hair nets uh, made from various materials, including silk. But the idea of making hair nets out of human hair right, yeah. um, sort of emerged, um, they say, around 1897. I mean, one doesn't know if that's the exact okay. date, but it was apparently a sort of Parisian lady mm. of fashion who supposedly invented the idea of using hair. But, of course, hair was um, a very cheap material. It was a, yeah. a, a sort of a, a waste material. But what was particularly intriguing about these hairnets, apart from how unbelievably sort of fine and, and how labour-intensive mm. it is to make a hairnet out of little knots uh, of, of individual hair. That's it. It's a woven piece pulled literally it's, hair it's by hair. It's a woven piece. It's the idea, <laughs> the idea of using uh, human hair as a textile, mm. you know, which is something that we don't normally do because on the whole hair, once it's been... Um, removed from the body, sort of gains other associations, mm. might be used uh, for sort of uh, memory purposes, as we saw mm. with sort of mourning jewellery and, and um, you know, and, and jewellery made um, to keep relations close with a sense of affection. But very often hair, once it's removed from the head, is, is viewed with a certain amount of disgust yeah. as, as a sort of yeah. a waste product of the body. So the idea of, of keeping it, gathering it up, and then using it as a fibre for, mm. for wearing is rather intriguing. Absolutely, and discarding it from that original connection, but then utilising it again. And also, yeah, as you say, the intimacy. Because I, I was thinking about it in any of the use of hair that I think of, as you say, it's about kind of affection by association mm. rather than with this, you're... you're, you're so here the intimacy is removed yeah, completely, exactly. and it's sort of treated as a mere fibre. But, but on the other hand there's always this sort of sense that the sort of ghost of its human associations mm. might reappear. Yeah. So from time to time you find 
anxieties, you know, that somebody's contracted anthrax or they've contracted plague. And, oh, my God, it must be from the hairnet. Yeah. You know, and then they trace the origins of the hair and find it's from foreign places, China. And so it's got a very um, intriguing history. Mm. And the other thing that's very intriguing as it just uh, uh, as an object is that it's really advertised, uh, you know, its selling point is its invisibility, mm -hmm. which is very surprising for an yeah. item of fashion in some ways. Um, sure. Because they're sold and advertised very much as invisible human hair nets, with mm -hmm. the idea that the hair blends in um, with your own hair and therefore can't be seen. And um, But in fact, one of the things that intrigued me in researching it was that this invisibility, on the one hand, you know, linked to the materiality of the object mm. itself. It's invisible when worn, more or less. But but also the the, the layers of invisible labour that were behind the making of these objects. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So the purpose is for it to blend in and support the lifestyle and the style of the wearer. And through doing so, you have to ignore what's gone behind, but also literally the look of the hair. You can't yeah. be reminded that it's exactly. someone else. It has to just blend in completely. That's so interesting, and I think we'll explore those layers in a minute. I was also just intrigued by the date you gave it for the for when the earliest ones were, which is eighteen ninety seven. Mm. I would have imagined it was it would be older than that. I'd have thought mm. of it as such a you know pre existing and as you say largely waste product um, yeah. material that it would be something that had been originally used in an evolved past. I, I wonder why well, were, it took so long in a way. Yeah, <laughs> but there were all sorts of sort of pastiche, you know, various sort yeah, of hair exactly. pieces that were were yeah. in fashion. But the idea of actually making the nets, and maybe it's part, you know, the, the level of work required sure. for making them is, is fairly insane almost. Mm. Um, and as with many of these types of work, you need to have um, a labour force that, that can be paid sufficiently low wages, mm. really, to make the making of them possible. Yeah. And... Um, so when they first came into fashion, they were actually being made um, by um, rural women in uh, Alsace and Bohemia. So they were being made in Europe, uh, in areas where there was very little other than uh, agricultural work, and agricultural work itself was very limited. So it was some kind of way of supplementing your income or, or, or having an income when you might not otherwise have one. So women and children were the main um, makers of these hairnets. Um, but what happened was uh, that the um, the entrepreneurs behind uh, the distribution of that labour soon cottoned on to the idea that they could actually get them made more cheaply okay. in China. Mm. So, and there was a very interesting story. So again, looking back to this theme of invisibility, because uh, I think it was in, in 1914, there was uh, someone, an entrepreneur in Germany opening his packet uh, of hairnets, mm -hmm. and there happened to be this little piece of newspaper in there, written in English, which was referring to hairnet production in China. And he uh -huh. followed this up, and he actually found that a lot of the German companies had actually shifted their labour to China, but were still pretending that the things were being oh, made in Alsace, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. And one of the reasoning behind reasonings behind that was, of course, to avoid competition mm -hmm. in China, but also um, to avoid paying taxes, Chinese taxes. Okay. So if they slipped them back. And gave the impression that they were locally made. Yeah. And then at the same time, of course, getting the prestige of these being European made, because there was always this slight sort of, you know, suspicion of these things that came mm. from China. Yeah. Was that a suspicion of the Chinese market or was it something about the otherness of, of the hair? And, you know, that, as we've said, that kind of intimacy yeah. of it to the body, yes. is it that there was more affiliation with a European 
predictable. Yes, I mean, I would think there was a sense that, you know, European things were more sanitary. Yeah. And uh, so very often the Chinese-ness of both the hair and the labour were completely effaced in the way in which these hair nets were marketed. And I've, I've got a collection of about uh, 35 uh, hair nets in, in a wonderful array of very different envelopes. And only mm. one of them, that's this one here, actually says in it, made in China. Okay. And it's the only one out of mm. all of the ones that I've got. Um, that's, that's honest about yes, it. Except actually that, that much later one, um, mm. which is uh, from Ukraine. But other than that, they tend to have, you know, little indications they'll very often say foreign mm. thoroughly sterilized or something like that but they okay. won't actually say they won't that, they've, that they've actually been uh, made in china and they won't specify that the hair itself is chinese but if you mm. go to other sources like the textile mercury or something like yeah. that you come across you know accounts of how only chinese hair is suitable for making these nets okay. because it's slightly thicker and it's slightly more elastic right. and uh, and therefore it's absolutely ideal and has the right kind of length of uh, length and springiness for making these hair nets. That's clever. So Chinese hair, yeah. <laughs> Chinese hair was absolutely valorised as a material, but its actual identity was kind of disguised in the market. Right. And as I mentioned before, that you know, from time to time, you had these panics that you know somebody right. died of anthrax, and it must be from the Chinese hair net yeah. that they were wearing. You know, and suddenly this fear. So there you get this both this desire and at the same time this sort of repulsion and fear. Yeah. Of, of, of otherness, which, of course, is really interesting because even in the human hair market today, you know, you have a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, let's avoid the middle man, the middle woman and, and go, you know, get import these things direct mm. from China or India. And then you suddenly get this, oh, but you might import them with lice and, yeah, might, no, and all these yeah. sort of anxieties mm. about these bodies of others. Yeah, um, sure. So if you so, think the consumer needs to believe that not only has it been through some physical processes, but the idea that it's been through that kind of infrastructure of yes. the industry reassures yeah. that enough has taken place, there's yes. been enough time and distance before it reaches their own head. And the packaging <laughs> plays a really important <laughs> role in that. that, that it, it takes it away from yeah. that sort of bodily substance element That's and it. puts it into, you know, a, a jolly and fashionable That's kind it. of... Um, uh, arena. Yeah, I was going to comment on that. The fact you've mentioned already that they come in envelopes, and you mean that very literally. They're lovely little paper envelopes, um, each with an illustration, um, kind of setting the tone. Normally showing a very fashionable woman of the time mm. it's from. Um, and one it relates it to that fashion life, and it makes it slightly idealized mm. for the wearer. But two, it kind of detaches what's inside. Absolutely, kind of very it. important element of it. Yeah, oh, it's lovely, and the daintiness yeah. reflects the daintiness. Like, yeah. <laughs> now, when I was researching uh, these things, I, in fact, originally first came across the existence of human hair nets through doing research in the archives of the London College of Fashion, uh, when Jane Holt was the archivist there. And I would go pretty much every Tuesday and <laughs> I would obsessively turn every single page of the Hairdressers Weekly Journal, which, um, you know, has been going for uh, over 100 years yeah and is the most incredible uh, resource of information about sort of fashion history linked to hair. And in there, I came across, you know, advertisements like this, mm. which were advertising um, these human hair nets, these wonderful invisible human hair nets. Mm. And, uh, and I became intrigued by that and began to try and sort of trace whatever I could find about them. 
And like many researchers, I became completely obsessed <laughs> with trying to find an image yeah. of somebody actually <laughs> no, making what yeah. it is. Thing. So being an advertiser, I don't just want to see the image and the advertising, I want to see the making of it. Yeah. And I could not ever find an image of anybody making it. And then one day, <laughs> late at night on my computer when I was on eBay, I Love came across uh, <laughs> an incredible image, an incredible image of, and it's called an Alsatian peasant making the Queen Empire's hairnets at Selfridges <laughs> in London. Now, it doesn't have uh, a date on it, mm. and I don't know the exact date of it, mm. uh, perhaps around 1920. Yeah, um, there's a woman seated on a kind of uh, elegant chair, dressed in the most incredibly elaborate version of sort of Alsatian peasant dress, with a sort of huge bow that was uh, worn on the head. I think usually for sort of festive occasions, not necessarily every not day. Not a, a working uniform. Yeah. And on a table beside her, <laughs> excuse me, on a table beside her, there's an enormous hank of very thick and luscious, long black Chinese hair. And she is giving a demonstration uh, of making hairnets. And these types of demonstrations were happening in department stores in the, in the United Kingdom, in the United States as well. Right. But what is interesting, of course, is they represent the front stage of the yeah. industry and not, and not the, yeah, exactly. what's happening yeah. in the background yeah. in China. It's and like I, idealizing yeah. and removing it from the source project. Yeah. And again, I've never been able to find so far an image of those hairnets being made in China. Although recently, um, my sister just came back from Yantai, which used to be Chefu, which was the port from which hairnets used to be okay. uh, exported in China. And uh, she sent me an image of, of, a, of what was a hairnet factory oh, yeah. uh, in China. And when I myself went to China, I did... Um, visit a very small uh, a private hair museum that had been set up um, not far from Qindao in the Shandong province, so again near to the area where these hairnets uh, were made, and I saw a sort of great hank of hairnets, as you can see the picture of them here, yeah, they look amazing, oh, all wow, sort of piled yeah. together like a sort of sure. big sort of wadge of spider's webs, I was going to say, yeah, um, which have been beautifully yes. dyed blonde for the European market. Because, of course, this was, again, one of the complications of the hair. is that most of the hair that was being used, because it was Chinese, was black. black. But they wanted hair in all the colours that would suit the European palette. Mm -hmm. So at one time, they were actually exporting the hair in order to get it dyed in Europe, in order to then re-export it back to China to get it knotted and made into wow. nets, and then re-export it back to Europe and America. Uh, and it further justifies the slight insinuation that it's European product because yes. some of the process is taken. Yes. Technically, something Absolutely. happened. And then this is quite an intriguing uh, image here. It looks like a sort of round ball on which a hairnet has been opened out. And this was someone uh, who, who, who produced the patent or patent for, um, for inspecting hairnets because okay. obviously, you know, you have to have uh, quality control <laughs> <laughs> long distance. And so they actually set up sort of uh, hair inspection units where the where each each net would be displayed on a head, and, and you know, to check uh, yeah. the knotting before it entered into the export market. And that proves the scale and importance of the industry and of the product as well. You know, again, don't underestimate these yeah. items. These are the things that are every day. They don't survive, but that almost proves their, their importance to actual experience and wear is rather than Absolutely. They were these ephemeral things that in a sense are more or less invisible in the archive as yeah. well, in the sense that they're not really an item that one's particularly aware of, I yeah, think, in exactly. fashion history. 
But the um, the uh, figure for 1921 to 1922 was 180 million human hairnets exported from China to the United States. Oh so we're talking about wow. quite a large scale yeah. of production. That this is was not a peripheral thing. Absolutely not. It's ginormous. And also I imagine it's not... Um, it's context specific and it's for a European market, but it's not clasp specific. I imagine this is something that the lady of the house and the maid of the house is going to need as a product on the market. Or, or do you see with the hairnets distinctions in terms of who the projected buyer is? <laughs> I think it began as an elite thing okay. and then it became a more yeah. popular thing, particularly in the United States. I think but <laughs> sort of 1920, 1921. 1922, those kind of years in the United States, it became very, very mm -hmm. much uh, something that you could pick up at any little department yeah. store or even at the local garage or something. Yeah. You know, sort of um, uh, yeah. for a few dimes. So they say, in, in, uh, judging by the press and the Times. Um, and does fashion have an effect on the designs and the formations of the hairnets? Does it have to reflect, therefore, you know, possibilities of hairstyle and um, yeah. Well, that's a very interesting question because they came into fashion at a time when people had these large, elaborate, mm. sort of built-up styles, and uh, and of course in the nineteen twenties you get the bob coming in. Yeah. And when the bob became kind of ubiquitous, that caused a major sort of panic in the hairnet making okay. industry because suddenly the desire right. for the hairnet had gone, and yeah. women were you know uh, cutting their hair off. But um, what happened was they then de developed special bob you know uh, special hairnets designed specifically for bobs and this is when they started introducing the two two hairs at a time so rather than being individually tied threads there were two by two still very fine yeah. but uh, <laughs> two by two the hairnets were being tied together and it gave it a, a, and a slightly more sort of round cap shaped kind okay. of um, net was introduced and it was really some of the uh, advertising is really fascinating to look at because you see these sort of advertisements which were very much sort of saying, you know, women, go out into the world. Mm. You can drive around and motor about in your car. Yeah. You can play tennis <laughs> in a special, you know, hairnet, etc. Yeah, so this idea of freedom yeah. and at the same time with this kind of invisible containment right. that's there with that net. And I think it's a, quite an interesting yeah, kind exactly. of statement of on yeah. what terms are you allowed your freedom. Absolutely. Physical yeah. liberty, but with, yeah, with restraint. But always carefully restrained. I was going to say, yeah. By that hairnet. That's intriguing. And that you compare that with something like, you know, a golfing a corset or a riding yes. corset or something. It's yeah. like absolutely feel free to go into these uh these new avenues and activities for you, but one, we'll turn it into a commodity and find a way to spin it. Yeah. But two, you still have to look like yes. the ideal fashionable woman of the time. How interesting. And so then you, of course the net as seductive device is yeah. also very much uh, used in the advertisements. So okay. it's kind of you know you can trap your man <laughs> trap him by your net and through your net. Right. You know? And there was some nice article in the New York Times in the nineteen twenties sort of saying, you know, men beware of these women, you know, they've all got these hair yeah. you think that's a natural glint in their hair, but it's actually a hair net. You know? Okay, so that's another <laughs> So that's another reason why it's got to be invisible. So yes. <laughs> it's quite invisible arts. Invisible exactly. seductive arts. That women have for the trickery that will the lengths yes. will go to literally yeah. that is so intriguing and um you mentioned there the kind of impact on the chinese market or the kind of fear or feeling of fashions mm. changing so that's an interesting one where the european market will be excited by change and will adapt to it but actually yeah. it's having this huge impact on another space and time yes absolutely and you see that again you know, what was very interesting for me was sort of looking at what was happening 
with a hair in it and looking at what's happening now because you know China is the biggest uh, producer of you know hair extensions and wigs mm. uh, made from human hair for the global market right. but again they have enormous difficulty in keeping up with you know fashion demands which are so fickle and change so quickly it might mm. be linked to some pop star singing this and yeah. you know appearing in a video there yeah. and uh, and suddenly they're expected to be able to produce uh, that you know and something else becomes uh, redundant so one of the biggest difficulties they have is to try to keep in tune with mm-hmm. those uh, changes. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the effects of fast fashion on yeah. something as, as, yeah, it's kind of hidden, Large but very well, exactly, and, yeah. And, uh, and terribly labour-intensive. So yeah. The other aspect that's really interesting about these hair nets, really, is how the hair was collected in the first mm. place. And really, there were two main means by which hair came into the market for making hair nets. And one was that um, you know, um, in China, the uh, as part of the sort of uh, the Qing dynasty, the Manchu elite had imposed a particular hairstyle on on uh, men, whereby they were supposed to shave the sort of front of their head and keep a long plait in the back. And particularly, the shaving at the front was uh, compulsory, and the long plait in the back was part of the style. And this was a style that you had to have, in fact, on penalty of death. Wow. Um, and um, what happened... Uh, so, so, so men kept long hair, and they would go to the barbers, or itinerant barbers would sort of travel around, and you would go to the barber who would sort of unwind your plait and clean your hair and re-plait it up. And the barber had the right to collect the long hairs that fell out oh. during that process. Wow. So a lot of the hair that was coming into the market for these hair nets was actually combings. It's fallen hair oh, that's dropped that out of men's hair. So again, so, yeah. crossing these gender lines in yeah. quite interesting ways that that's people would probably be quite horrified. I was going to say, <laughs> your young lady at the, sorry, at the time was going to get yeah. quite a shock. Yeah. <laughs> so there was <laughs> this extraordinary market in, in fallen hair. And this market is still very much alive today okay. for the hair extension market. So I was able to look at, you know, when traveling in India and China and Myanmar, I was able to trace how that market operates today mm-hmm. and visit workshops where people are untangling comb waste in order for it to be refashioned wow. and up-fashioned up into, uh, upcycled, if you like, into yeah. uh, hair extensions and wigs, which of course yes, within has its parallel with, with the what was happening with the hair nets yeah. and this, this trade in, exactly. in long strands of Chinese hair that yeah. were sort of you know, crossing the Atlantic. and, and So that was rather extraordinary. And then the other means by which they came in was sort of um, <laughs> towards the end of the um, uh, 20th century. I've got my senses right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, I had a brief moment of complete lapse. Um, towards the end of the 19th century uh, <laughs> in China, there were attempts to sort of, um, well, there were various groups who were wanting to sort of modernise and who felt that this, you know, long, flat mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, was something that the Chinese should move away from in the, in the interests of modernisation. Mm-hmm. And part of that was also linked to trying to rebel against uh, this dynasty, which was uh, the ruling dynasty right. within China. So you had various things going on. You had Europeans... Uh, Latently mockering, mocking the mm. the Chinaman for his pigtail. It was called, yeah. the, you know, they used to call it the pigtail. And you can see, I've got an extraordinary image here, yeah. which is actually a sort of, I mean, it's an ironic image uh, from the magazine Puck, 
magazine in the United States dated 1898. Mm -hmm. And you can see, you know, um, European civilization <laughs> in the form of this woman in her robes wear, wearing a cloak which actually says civilization on it. And she's grasping with her hand in a very aggressive manner and an enormous pair of scissors in the other hand, um, the, the plait of, of a Chinaman who's portrayed in a very caricatural fashion. Mm. And on her scissors is written 19th century progress. <laughs> and on the man's plait is written worn out traditions. Oof. So this sense of yeah. you know, civilization being imposed, mocking, let us tame you, let us bring you into civilization yeah. and stuff like that. But of course the subtext when you're looking at the history of hairnets yeah. of an image like that yeah, is that not only are you mocking mm. uh, this you know, supposedly outdated tradition but you're also grabbing the hair and gonna, using it yeah, uh, to exactly. hold your own hair in place. It's so misleading because so, it's yeah, yeah. let me patronise you yeah. um, but then I will use the byproduct. Yeah, so there's an extraordinary kind of hypocrisy to that image, yeah. which is very, very powerful and says a lot about how global trade relations work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and continue. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so within talking about this illustration, we've kind of covered the idea of um, cutting hair as civilising or seen, and I want to put yeah. that in inverted commas, but also it being about claiming and commodity. Mm. And you also mentioned about the barbers having kind of a right over the hair mm. that they'd cut um, how does that relate to contemporary practice and you're saying about the un unweaving or unpicking yes of the, um well the <laughs> um so in a country like india where people are on the whole reluctant to sell their hair okay. um but nonetheless there's sufficient poverty for people to want to earn some money from mm -hmm. their hair mm -hmm. um so Quite a large proportion, about 70 or 80 percent of the hair that is now being exported from India is actually coming from comb waste. Okay. So what happens is people, when they're washing their hair or brushing it, will keep the combings that, that drop out from it and just roll it up and, and, and put the hair in a, in a little bag or box. Right. And so all over India, but also in you know China, um, Myanmar and, and really any country where people particularly in Asia where people, you know, women, the majority of women still have very long hair. Mm. There's not a tradition, uh, an old tradition of, of cutting it. People will keep this hair. <laughs> and then you have um, itinerant traders who will go door to door mm -hmm. collecting it up. So there'll be some, some people might be collecting, you know, waste glass and waste hair or, or, or some people will just be specialising in hair. Mm. Um, and sometimes they're traveling long distances on bicycle, on foot. Okay. Uh, and so there are whole networks of people collecting up hair door to door. Yeah. And people will sell like uh, about 100 grams worth, which might have taken a year or two to accumulate. Right. For which they'll get about the equivalent of about one euro, just under a pound. Um, but of course, once that, you know, it, it, it's yeah, actually well, being marketed by, you know, it's being the... Once that's pulled yes, together. it becomes tons and tons. Yeah. And, um, and so the, the main difficulty with this hair is that it has to be untangled. Mm. And the untangling of comb waste is an unbelievably uh, labour-intensive mm. uh, activity. Um, and a kilo and a half of hair takes about 80, that's eight zero hours to <sighs> untangle. Oh, my God. And, you know, it begins with just literally pulling apart the fibre in order to get the sort of threads in a straight line. But then, of course, you've got to align the threads into, you know, yeah, lengths. Yeah, so you'll have people sitting down on the floor 
just surround it by different lengths of hair, you know, five inches here, six inches there, seven inches here, etc. Et right. And the um, formation. building the formation and then the hair has to be hackled, the lice has to be taken out of it. And then all of this is done by hand. Oh. And uh, so it goes through a huge variety of processes before it gets into some sort of perfect bunch form, mm -hmm. uh, which is the form in which it's likely to be sent to, you know, a factory in China for being used in, in hair extensions or something like that. So there's this whole kind of uh, labour force, really, generally located in the poorest regions of countries, uh, you know, low-income places, um, where predominantly women and, and sometimes children are involved in, in doing that work. And so what seems like an almost impossibly archaic sort of Dickensian thing, mm. when you read about it, of course, is something that's still going on yeah, exactly. very much uh, today. Yeah. So this is one of the ways in which it's quite interesting as an anthropologist to work with history or a historian to work with anthropology, that you, you know, that the yeah. processes you see in the present illuminate things from the past and vice versa. Definitely, and question how much progress has actually been made yes. or if we just... Um, you know, distance ourselves all yeah. the more now. That's so intriguing. I've, I've definitely had, I can remember as a teenager, a friend buying some hair extensions in Leeds Market mm. and everyone kind of teasing her that, mm. you know, think of, think of the head that they've come from and how sort of, yeah, yeah it seemed like such a privileged thing to be doing. But I've never really thought about the number of hands involved no. as well. And, and that almost terrifies me more. The level of work yes. that's gone into something actually yeah. doesn't end up being, it doesn't end up being expensive enough, mm. basically, no. for that level of work. Absolutely. and expertise and time to have gone into it absolutely yeah. and it's amazing actually how many people don't think about it at no. all yeah yeah of course it becomes yeah. completely removed from from the bodies and, and and certainly the labor that's gone into them yeah and i suppose the the um the industry today would probably see that as a success in that they've successfully distanced it enough yes. from that from that work whereas there is something you know that work is not acknowledged but at least with the envelopes for the hair nets um the fact that that base product is human is is kind of admitted and if not you know almost celebrated um, well it's so intriguing the human hair trade in that in that sense because on the one hand they want the hair to be human yeah. but it's kind of valued more than the artificial because there are all sorts of artificial substitutes mm. but on the other hand it's precisely the very humanness and the i you know if you actually sort of look into what that humanness represents yeah. in terms of bodies and in terms of labor yeah then it needs to be downplayed so you've got to kind of upplay it and downplay it yeah it's like the whole sort of invisibility of the hair net the whole thing is true sits in a very strange tension yeah a balancing act between the two and also that within it you've touched you know obviously there's a difference in culture and place but also in gender the idea of you know that it may well have been a gentleman's hair that you, mm. you're adding in is, is really really intriguing mm. um, and then the impact on the individual in terms of self-presentation but also things like their sexuality and their attractiveness is oh, it's so so intriguing but I was also just so struck by within the kind of discussion of just the level of work that goes into producing one of these. Mm. I think the most accurate description we've pulled up is the idea of it being like a cobweb. Mm. Um, I think we have to pair this with some images to show. And I was really intrigued with the photograph um, mm. of the uh, supposed Alsatian peasant posed in Selfridges because mm. I had imagined it is a very posed portrait and I had imagined it was not a real um, 
real act or action mm. that was being depicted. Mm. But these demonstrations actually did take place. They in did churches. take place, yes. And I, I, I came across uh, an account of one uh, in, I can't remember whether it was Macy or it was one of the American mm. sort of big department stores as well and uh, of, a, of a particular sort of Alsatian woman who was going around from mm. department or store to department store and you could come and right. see her actually make them and be yeah. amazed because yeah. there was always this sense that it's so fine, this work. Yeah. It seems almost impossible to think that somebody's made them. Yeah, but yeah, that's amazing. And again, that shows that's a clever um, product placement kind of act yes. in itself because it puts the focus on this woman who is almost in ceremonial dress and very yeah. skilled at what she's doing and it's presented as an artisan yes. experience rather than yeah. again, therefore, further distracts and further mm. distances itself from its original area. Gosh, this is amazing. I think we could talk about it for hours. And <laughs> with that in mind, I'm kind of curious about does this feel... Uh, well, I think there's just so many directions and it's such an under, underutilised, underexplored area. Does this feel like a life's work ahead of you now? <laughs> well, it's interesting. So I, I wrote a book about the human hair trade mm. uh, a couple of years ago called Entanglement, mm-hmm. uh, The Secret Lives of Hair. And, um, and it's interesting because, in fact, it was only as I was really doing the sort of copy editing right at the very end okay. stage of the book still slightly obsessed with hair and slightly mourning the idea that I might not be working on it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I was looking around, sort of again, late at night on <laughs> eBay and Etsy and things like that, and I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, these hairnets are still available. You can buy right. them in their envelopes yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. through these websites, and they still contain the original yeah. hairnets. So, of course, I bought one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as well. And, and, <laughs> and slowly got more and more sort of intrigued by these different envelopes. Mm. Might one find some tiny little clip of some other piece of information? Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, there's one which has a picture of a, um, you know, a hair network of, again, the Alsatian peasant worker in her home, working at her table. Yeah, and Um, very distinctly, the hair that she's working with is very different colour to her own, which I imagine is deliberate, again, the distancing. Oh, yeah, that's that's great. So traditional dress and... So she's yeah. neatly working in nice light conditions by the window. Yeah. That's so interesting. But I haven't, uh, on the whole, you know, I've looked uh, all over the place. You know, there's so many pictures of sort of lace makers and, mm. you know, fishing net makers. Yeah, yeah. with all these different crafts, but you could never quite get to the images of the yeah. uh, hair net makers. I did find one image in a Chinese prison mm-hmm. in the 1950s, which seems to imply that Hair net making did go on to some extent okay. uh, in China, even after, you know, the sort of yeah. lapsed here with the advent of nylon. And um, and I did buy one uh, hair net that I got from a Ukrainian dealer on Etsy. But that's a really interesting envelope because all the other envelopes are incredibly glamorous yeah. and, you know, very fashionable. Mm. Uh, and here, this is just a completely plain yeah. envelope. It just says, real human hair net, handmade. Um <laughs> Keep your hair tidy with this invisible uh, <laughs> yeah. hair uh, made in the People's Republic of China. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, completely yeah. blank. Absolutely does what it says no on the artifice. Nothing on the back yeah. whatsoever. Um, but which is intriguing because the the, the dealer who, who who was trading this was in Ukraine, and um, so perhaps there mm. was a kind of sort of network of sort of communist trade, right? If you like. Yeah. Um, and then therefore. It, presenting it as a purely practical item rather than an yeah. item that's to assist the yeah, yeah, in that context. Oh, that's so interesting. But yeah, so I think, with it, I was 
spoke on a previous interview about the idea of little ghosts and things that survive by accident. And I think there's there's something in the researcher or the curator today where we've got to swoop it all up and try and keep it because something like this will just be lost otherwise as a story. And there's something rather extraordinary about how this labour is sort of trapped in these envelopes, yeah. you know, that it's survived, uh, you know, in many cases over 100 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, intact and human hair of course is actually incredibly resilient mm. unless it's attacked by moths mm. it just uh, remains it doesn't actually erode so that's also quite an interesting element of it yeah absolutely but so I started collecting them and I sort of somewhere in my mind I thought probably I'll do an exhibition someday yeah, and, and, and they will come into their own and they have been in a yeah. couple of exhibitions now so, so they're, <laughs> they're at the ready as a resource yeah. but yeah inspiring as they go along as well that's so interesting um I was intrigued, kind of talking more widely for the interview. Um, you're the first person we've had who's spoken about something that is not either a garment or a shoe. Um, right. You know, everyone else is kind of stuck yeah. here quite neatly. And I was interested whether you were, um, you know, we've just spoken about things that might be lost mm. otherwise. Are you? Do you find yourself drawn to the items, both of everyday life mm. and, as you said, reading and culture, but also um, the underestimated and maybe the things that don't tend to be utilised in research because we're used to them? already yes I mean I've I've tended always to be more interested in the everyday than in the kind of iconic fashion thing Mm -hmm. um so all the work that I've done with dress because I wrote a book about uh, called visibly Muslim fashion Mm -hmm. politics and faith and before that a book um linked to Indian dress it was always very much more about the everyday and how people work out everyday things yeah uh, through their dress rather than sort of iconic names in fashion history yeah so I leave that to fashion history yeah I'm sure something. Uh-huh. and uh and it's these yes more hidden histories uh but but ones which perhaps affect many more people that I'm always particularly um intrigued by mm. perhaps that's a particular strength for being an anthropologist and also large you know picking subjects for their contemporary context and then mm. working into the history mm. is that you you know sometimes as a fashion historian or curator you're stuck with the frustration of only being able to study what survives where yes. if you enter a yes. subject from its contemporary um kind of iteration yeah. then maybe that gives you you find little keyholes into a well subject. I think you're right you find interesting keyholes and also if you don't confine yourself to a particular domain you know if you don't just look at the fashion kind of things but you're also looking at what's happening in Chinese politics at the yeah. time or what's happening in you know various religious movements mm. and things quite often you'll find connections that wouldn't normally yeah. find a meeting point yeah and that's that's really interesting uh, to do I mean the problem I perhaps with this type of research is that it like the hairnet itself is incredibly labor intensive mm, yes. you've got to follow up uh, all these strands and of course as you point out, when you're working with history, you find what you find, but you're always aware that there's a whole layer yeah. that you can't quite get to, escaped. that you want to yeah. get to. So at what point do you ever stop? Mm. Uh, but I think that's true with most types of research. Really. Yeah. It's difficult to stop once you start. Definitely. And it's partly the thrill of the chase. Yeah, as well. There is, an, there is an element of that, for sure. And you know, particularly with archival work, which in some ways can be very monotonous and very repetitive, and then you get these little moments where mm. suddenly something triggers something off and a whole sort of area can open up in its own. And, and finding finding an image of a, a you know an advertisement for a human hen, it was very much like that yeah. for me, because it opened up a whole right. kind of domain. And before... I sort of looked into the history of the human hairnet. I I wasn't really even aware of, the, you know, the chi- that, that there'd been a trade in hair between mm. China and, no. and 
England, the United States for, you know, for well mm. over a century. And I thought of it as a contemporary mm. element of contemporary globalization. So it's also very good for relativizing one's sense of the Absolutely. present by, by looking at the past in that sense. Yeah. But yeah, that's really, really striking. I'm intrigued to know um, what's the reception been of your research, either in, you know, as of, um, I don't know how to word this, if, if that is an ongoing but still rather hidden part of the industry. Have you had any resistance from, from people about you telling this story? It's been very interesting because um, the reception of my work has been perhaps um, different from what I expected in the sense that there are some areas of it you know, everybody's intrigued by the story of Comings and those mm. kind of things. So that, that tends to be what people will cover um, in the newspaper or radio coverage or whatever. But as far as um, other reactions, I mean, my book is going to be translated, it is being translated at the moment into Chinese and Korean. Mm. So that um, might be interesting. Definitely. Um, and uh, certainly I tried in writing the book to try and give a sense of, you know, what this hair trade looks like from different spaces and in the, from the perspective of different actors. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't written as a kind of, uh, you know, a condemnation uh, you yeah, know, sure. from some sort of grand Western point whereby you sort of look back, look down at the rest of the world and, and point and wag your finger in mm. disgust. I mean, it was it was very much looking at, you know, what are the different types of labor involved in mm. this what are the different techniques of survival what are these complicated histories of entanglement whereby mm. western fashion is boosted all the time by Absolutely. by these products and, and and this labor so actually we're all connected into one big story here exactly and, yeah uh, there is no moral vantage point from no. which you can uh you know stand back with the surety and point your finger kind Absolutely. of thing. no i think you've spoken really eloquently about one industry bolstering another and yeah interconnections within that and yeah you've absolutely spoken with respect for the level of skill and work yeah. involved in producing these pieces so that's fascinating but it sounds like yeah an ongoing conversation so i look forward to hearing what happens next and um, as a bit of a tangent and perhaps to kind of bring this to a close um i'd be interested to know a little about your own um almost personal perspective because you've spoken really well about using dress or items associated with the body to kind of talk about um different networks of production and mm. trade and industry and also kind of a uh, cultural experience. Um, but there is also the element that relates to the individual. Um, and I was wondering if do you uh, find that your work ever has an impact on how you think about clothes and how you get dressed or how you experience fashion yourself? Uh, it does in the sense that uh, there's different aspects to that. I mean, one aspect to it is... Um, whatever context that I'm doing research in, I'm aware of how I'm likely to be perceived and that will affect the sort of clothing that I'm wearing. Mm -hmm. So if I'm doing research amongst, you know, in Orthodox Jewish wig parlours, mm. I'm not going to walk in in, a, sure. in, in, in tight trousers or something, yeah. you know. So in that sense, you know, and certainly with say, when I was working um, on Islamic fashion, you mm. know, sometimes I would be dressed much more conservatively than the people I was right. interviewing because I felt it was always important to, to have a kind of respectful appearance and yeah. better be too respectful than the opposite. Yeah. Um, in relation to hair, uh, one of the things that was quite interesting, I wanted to sort of gain a sense of what it is to collect your own hair and how mm. much hair that actually generates. Mm -hmm. So ever since putting in the research proposal, and you know when you put in a research proposal, you never know if you're going to get sure, it. There's always yeah. an element of chance. 
So I thought hair's been used, you know, in witchcraft and, you know, <laughs> in all sorts, you know, sort of, yeah. I thought, let me collect my hair, uh-huh. almost in a sort of totemistic kind of way yeah. to try to, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of Apply like, your own I want, I want yeah. this, I, I want this grant, you know, I'm collecting <laughs> yeah. my hair for it. You know? and, uh, Practice well, what you so preach. When, yes, and when I did get a grant from the Leverton Trust, I thought, well, you know, we go. let me carry on collecting my hair. Mm. So I've been collecting my hair now for over five years, actually, all the hair that Amazing. falls out in my comb and stuff like that. And I have the most enormous, right, know, huge cushiony wodge of it. Okay, that's so and, interesting. To, yeah, uh, to really be able to visualise what that because in my yes, head, when you're to actually get a sense of what that represents, it. I'll show you later. Yeah, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> it generally disgusts people. Quite yeah, well. no, I'm, but, uh, <laughs> no, I'm intrigued. But it's quite <laughs> interesting because it sort of balls up without you really rolling okay. it into balls. It actually does sort of ball up on its own. So it looks like some clumps that yeah. if you saw it from far. You know, if it was hard, it would be cold, but it looks slightly like sheep's droppings or something. I mean, it looks yeah. quite revolting, actually. But, um, and uh, these kind of tangled balls. And, uh, but it is incredibly striking what mm. a huge uh, mass it creates. Yeah. Uh, in that. So that's given me a sense of, of what that um, mm-hmm. represents. And I started you know, collecting hair from my cats when I brushed them instead of throwing it away, I'd collect that as well. Mm. You know, I'm intrigued by the different textures of yeah. human and animal hair and why we feel differently about different types of hair yeah. and how come we can wear sheep's wool with such impunity, but the idea of wearing cat hair is somehow yeah. Yeah. So I sort of made um you know, I sort of made felted hairballs out of my cat's hair and made a necklace out of uh, my cat's hair and my sister's dog's hair. And, <laughs> and they were all, we used it in an exhibition room where we were looking at the relationship mm. between sort of human and animal hair, you know. And really intriguingly, uh, according to EU legislation, you're not allowed to make any commercial use of cat or dog hair. But really? human hair is fine. That is absolutely bizarre. Yeah, that's so that's so also kind of I would have loved to be in whatever boardroom when that decision was made. <laughs> but I think, strange. again, it was probably linked to fear of, you know, yeah. what are the Chinese selling us, you know, cat yeah. hair collars on their jackets kind of thing. You know, right. this, yeah. this kind of logic. Yeah. But actually the human hair, you know, interestingly, has been exempt. You know, when Trump uh, recently was introducing, you know, uh, you know, raised taxation on all sorts of goods coming um, coming into the United States, but human hair was exempt from that okay. because, of course, they're relying yeah. on on China for, um, for this human hair. So you yeah. see all the time this kind of wavering off of what advantage, disadvantage, yeah. disgust, desire, um, you know, imbalance all the mm. time and all these things. What a thing to grapple with. <laughs> How fascinating. Well, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for giving us such a guided tour through such a you know, sort of subject. And certainly lots to take away and think about. <laughs> a pleasure. <laughs> and thank you for listening.